you know why do we feel scared what is it that's holding you back and for me the answer to all of that is always to look for your happy high status to look for the part of you that feels oh I can do this this is fine or yeah I can find a way to make this manageable that I can do it my way and not have to pretend to be someone I'm not Hello and welcome to the Medical Women podcast, the world's first podcast aimed at supporting and empowering medical women in their careers. I'm Dr. Nuthana Bayankaram and it's my honour and joy to be your host as each week we speak to a fantastic guest who's here to help us in our careers. I'm Vice President of the Medical Women's Federation, the largest body of women doctors in the UK and the voice of medical women on medical issues. Join us as each week we hear about a topic that's helpful for all of us in our careers. Hello everybody, welcome to season four of the Medical Women podcast. Now it's interesting this season I have recorded all the episodes before we're actually putting them out. Um, Normally we record as we go along But the reason that there's been a little bit of a delay in putting out the episodes this time is because I've been trying to look for sponsorship. Jenna, our wonderful editor, and I do the podcast for free because we wanted to make a resource that was free for everybody to listen to. But it's quite hard when you're spending a lot of your time making each episode. And actually over the last year, I ended up taking a pay cut to do the podcast, which really isn't sustainable. So we're looking for sponsorship. I've I've hopefully got some sponsorship for some of the episodes that we're doing, which is exciting. But yeah, still a lot of it is, is not sponsored and it's not really going to be possible to continue to do another season of this podcast without sponsorship. So if you're listening to this, I would so appreciate if you could help us in making introductions and connections and suggesting potential sponsors, because we'd love to keep this podcast going, but it's just not sustainable to do it without sponsorship. So this season is going to be a whole how-to series, and this first episode is all about how to be happy high status. And our fabulous guest today is Viv Groskop. Viv is an author and a comedian, and she's a podcast host herself. She has an amazing podcast called How to Own the Room, and she's written several best-selling books, including How to Own the Room, Lift As You Climb, and her newest book, Happy High Status, which is fantastic. And during this episode, we actually had a beautiful moment of spontaneous Happy High Status, where I realised halfway through the episode when Viv said my name, I said, oh, I've just realised I never actually taught you how to say my name. So um, actually my name's pronounced Nuthana. And Viv said, oh, well, thank you so much for telling me. And actually we've had this beautiful moment here, which is happy high status, that you felt comfortable telling me how to pronounce your name and I have felt comfortable being taught it. And this is something certainly that I'm trying to get better at um I'm not always very good at it I think um you know as a child kind of moving to the UK from India and having a very unusual name that was difficult to pronounce and just wanting to fit in I've kind of always found it a bit awkward to 
to teach people how to say my name, but now I'm realizing I'm not a six-year-old child, I'm an adult, and it's safe for me to teach people, and people won't know unless I teach them, right? So you might have noticed that the intro to the episode has changed slightly as well, because I realized that I've actually been mispronouncing my own name in the introduction, and that seems a bit silly. Um, so I'm now saying it properly. So um, so if I've ever taught you how to say my name incorrectly, I'm sorry. Um, this is how you actually pronounce it. It's pronounced Nuthana, and it means new in Sanskrit. Um, I'm totally going off topic and having my own little happy high status intro here. But anyway, that was something that was really nice that happened in this episode. And Viv in this episode shares with us her top tips from her new book, Happy High Status, but also from uh, Lift As You Climb and How To Own The Room. I just think this was a really, really helpful episode. I'm sure you'll find it really helpful. And Viv is just such a lovely person. I really enjoy reading her newsletters. You can tell she's a comedian. They always make me laugh. Um, And she puts links in with like, oh, like, I'm not allowed to buy new things, but maybe you can. Here's a jumper that I really like. Um, So she introduced me to some um, really lovely, like independent, small business British brands, um, which has been great to support them. Maybe I should ask them to sponsor the podcast as well. Um, But yeah, just her newsletter is really funny. And then I got to meet her earlier this year at a conference and kind of went up to her and was like, I love listening to your podcast. I'd love to have you on my podcast. Anyway, I think I've waffled on for quite a while now. So without further ado, here is our episode. So it's wonderful to have with me today Viv Groskop. Viv, it's so lovely to have you. Would you be able to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. My name is Viv Groskop and I'm the author of How to Own the Room and the new book, Happy High Status, How to Be Effortlessly Confident. I'm also a comedian and a podcaster. And I love listening to Viv's podcast, How to Own the Room. So it's really exciting that I'm getting to to speak to her today Um, because you kind of feel like you know people when you listen to their podcasts and then it's like, oh, I get to actually have a conversation with them. Um, So your new book, Happy High Status, I wonder if you can tell us what happy high status means to you. Yeah, happy high status is a concept from theatre and comedy. Um, There's a theatre director called Keith Johnston who first started talking about ideas of status in the 1960s and 1970s as part of theatre practice because it's something you have to think about a lot when you go on stage, especially if you're doing improv where there's no script. You're always thinking about what your status is in relation to the other performers. So I'm not talking about whether one of you is the queen and one of you is the lady in waiting or one of you is um, a politician and one of you is a homeless person. I'm not talking about that kind of status. I'm talking about the kind of status that is to do with your relationship in in relation to other people. So if you think about an example like Jeeves and Worcester, you've got two characters who are very, very similar in status to each other. And it's always a bit of a battle as to who's better than the other one and this is not to do with the name on your business card the role that you occupy in your work whether you've got a big house or a small house it's not that kind of social status it's the status within the environment within the relationships so that idea is really really important in theatre and in comedy and 
ever since I found out about that when I first started performing stand-up comedy more than 10 years ago I've been completely fascinated by it because it released me from a lot of ideas that I had about how confident I felt in certain situations or how intimidated and I began to think about how this concept can be used in other areas of life so that we can all feel a bit more at ease, a bit more ourselves, not getting caught up in these status battles that we can get very caught up in, especially at work, where we can bring some kind of neutral energy or open energy to things. In a way, it's about managing your ego. So you're trying not to constantly protect your ego or constantly be on the lookout for attacks from other people because you know goodness knows we're always under attack from other people right in one way or another yeah. it's where you're much more open and you don't feel so easily triggered by small things and I started talking about this idea in relation to how to own the room um, the book that I wrote which came out five years ago because one of the speakers I talked about a lot in that book is Michelle Obama and it really ties in with the idea that she talked about in her famous speech where she says, when they go low, we go high. If you think about what that means, it means if somebody makes a low blow towards you or says something rude or does something that's kind of beneath all of us, then you go high, you rise above, you turn the other cheek. It's really about trying to channel a sort of behavior that is much more generous and accepting where we don't all go low <laughs> so it's really asking what does that idea look like when we go high and try to have this happy high status amazing and I can't wait to read it and um, yeah, because we're well, recording this just before it comes out but um but the episode will come out um alongside the book coming out so everybody will be able to read it by then yeah, I'm really excited to see what people think about it, because initially, when I first wrote How to Own the Room, a lot of the ideas that are in that book and that I talk about in the podcast, they're quite practical ideas about what you should do when you are on stage or when you're giving a presentation or when you're doing a pitch or when you're having a difficult conversation with someone at work, especially people who are tricky characters. It's all about those moments where you're under pressure. And that conversation was very much about what to do, what on earth do you do, and giving people lots of different ideas as to what you could do. The conversation behind that was one I was, I wasn't sure how to start that conversation is really, I think we do know what we're supposed to do. We know, especially with public speaking, I think most people know what you're supposed to do. The question is more, why Why don't we do it? You know, why do we feel scared? What is it that's holding you back? And for me, the answer to all of that is always to look for your happy high status, to look for the part of you that feels, oh, I can do this, this is fine. Or yeah, I can find a way to make this manageable, that I can do it my way and not have to pretend to be someone I'm not. So it's much more of a internal looking conversation and I feel now I've had so many conversations about how to own the room that are really practical and I'll go on having those conversations because we really need to share share those skills and that information. But I really wanted to go a bit deeper and ask people, well, 
why do you not feel confident? Like, why do you not feel that you can be happy high status, even in difficult situations? What's holding you back there? And that conversation is, is a really fascinating one. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to speak to you a bit more about how to own the room. And I wonder from both the podcast and the and the book, what would you say are the like top tips that have come out for you from how to own the room? I guess the overriding message from all of this that I've really learned in the five years since I started the podcast and the book came out is that no one is really confident. <laughs> so my top tip is really stop comparing yourself to other people and thinking that they might be better than you. <laughs> you know, Comparison is famously the thief of joy. And there has not been a single person I've spoken to on the podcast, everybody from Hillary Clinton to Margaret Atwood to Julie Andrews to Mira Sayal, who cannot describe a situation in the past and in the present where they feel intimidated. We all feel intimidated by certain situations, even really, really famous, powerful, super confident people have situations that they avoid or that they find really tricky. And that is part of the joy of life is that you go on having challenges and you go on putting yourself in difficult situations. The point of life is not to always find everything easy, always have every door open for you and always feel like, oh yeah, I've got this. There's really nobody has that. So that is the biggest emotional or psychological tip that I'm always trying to remember myself is just always remember that nobody has got this. Nobody has. You know, I always uh, think, you know, people might think this about me, that I come across as really confident and I've been in lots of difficult situations and I teach this stuff and I talk about it all the time. I still get really nervous when I go on stage. I would really, really worry if I didn't. Um, I get nervous if I have to engage in certain difficult conversations. I have certain things that I'll even have half a, a thought in my head of like, I need to back out of this. But that's not me. That's just the human part of me, which is saying, come on, you've got to try your best here. Bring your best self and put your game face on. It's just totally normal to have those feelings and those thoughts. Um, in terms of more practical tips, because I know that people always love to think about what they can actually physically do. For me, top of the list, and it comes out, I would say probably like at least half of the podcast interviews this comes up, is breathing. You know, mm -hmm. we don't spend enough time taking ourselves to one side, having a moment where we just catch our breath and center our thoughts. A lot of this business of confidence and feeling in control of situations is to do with being in your body instead of being in your head. Because in your head, you're always telling yourself some story about how stressful this is or how annoying the other person is. And you have all these thoughts that are racing through your head. But in your body, if you can just get calm and be in the present moment, it's very obvious this, but we forget it all the time. Just take a moment to take a breath. Um, I usually say breathe in for four, breathe out for six, or breathe out for eight. Um, I heard somebody saying recently, breathe in for seven, breathe out for 11. I was like, wow, that's quite ambitious. I've got asthma. I don't think I could do that. But whatever works for you to take that breath. I also recommend uh, apps, apps that you can have on your phone that will help you remember to do this. Like Budify is a really good app. 
for these breathing exercises or headspace is another one and they have little mini breaks that you can take for yourself in your working day for two minutes five minutes ten minutes whatever you've got just put that on your phone have your headphones in take yourself to one side just for two minutes and you just center yourself the problem with today's pace of living and a lot of the situations that we find ourselves in is that people are constantly on their phone often before not doing mindfulness apps but like checking their emails or checking a message or replying to somebody or listening to a voicemail they're doing those things just before they go into a really stressful situation and that is not going to help you own the room it's not going to help you feel like you can approach this moment with true presence and real thoughtfulness so it's really remembering to take yourself out of your head take yourself out of the stress uh, take yourself out of that temptation to check your phone uh, I know that our lives are really busy and stressful but you do gain something if you can even just take 60 seconds or two minutes just to have that reset Thank you. Those practical tips are really helpful. And I'm so glad that you that you mentioned that theme that comes across that that people do get scared about public speaking or certain situations. And I think the thing that I'm realizing is that maybe when I was a bit younger, I used to think, oh, when I'm confident, I will get on a stage and do that. But what I'm realizing is actually by going and standing on a stage and speaking, that's how I'm developing my confidence at standing on a stage and speaking in front of people. And it's, um, I think sometimes we think that we'll do something when we feel confident enough, whereas you need to go and do the thing to build the confidence in the first place. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, that's a tough thing for people to hear. It's a tough thing to understand and it involves having a bit of guts really. But I think the more that we talk about this and acknowledge it to be true, because it is true, you have to do things before you're ready. You know, that ties in with what I was saying earlier about everyone I've ever spoken to who ever does anything stressful, whether it's in front of one person asking for a pay rise or telling them um, a really, really uncomfortable piece of information, uh, or whether it's in front of, you know, 50 million people doing the presidential debates. Um, we all have those moments where we think oh wow I haven't done this before and I don't know if I can ready uh, be ready for this and maybe there's someone else who might do this better maybe I could get them to do it we all have those moments and you can't wait you know life is too short to wait to be confident and exactly as you say Nathana that once you start doing the thing even when you're not ready you will be amazed by the readiness that then comes to you and you will learn something and every time you get better and better and if I've learned anything from stand-up comedy and all of the events that I do and a lot of the stuff that I do putting myself out there it's that lots of things can go wrong and you can look stupid and you can say something idiotic and you can mess up I mean I've had everybody talk about these things on the podcast from you know uh I don't think I've had anybody talk about literally being sick on stage, but like Adele, the singer, has literally thrown up into the front row of her own concerts because she has such terrible stage fright. Um, I've had 
Uh, Mel Robbins, the American coach on the podcast, talking about wetting herself on stage in front of like 10,000 people. Nobody even noticed. Um, we all have like these crazy fears of like the worst thing that can happen or going dry, like forgetting everything that you were going to say. Um, the microphone fails, the tech fails, the PowerPoint breaks. Honestly, these things do not matter. <laughs> really, there's no mistake or error or failure that you can't recover from. And, and very often people just don't remember these things at all. And if they do remember them, then they remember them in a positive light because they think, oh, yeah, you're the one where the PowerPoint failed or, you know, you're the one where the microphone stopped working and you just had to shout. You know, they remember it as a positive thing that you coped in a situation of adversity. So if we can become less obsessed with being ready and less obsessed with being perfect and embrace doing things when we're not ready and doing them imperfectly, not only does it give us experience, but it also really enhances us in the eyes of others because other people really need to see this is how this really happens. This is real life. Things go wrong. People forget things. People go red. People get sweaty. Some people like this stuff. Some people don't like this stuff. It doesn't matter. Everybody can do it. Uh, the more we'll see lots of different kinds of people stepping up, taking leadership roles, not being afraid to speak up uh, and not setting this kind of really quite fake high standard that hardly anybody reaches up to anyway and that we don't really need. And it's not even necessary that we have all of these difficult feelings of fear and so on. Absolutely. And I'm going to put what you said into practice now and practice because I realize that I am um, one thing that I'm not very good at is teaching people how to say my name properly. And I just realized that I didn't actually teach you how to say my name. So it's it's pronounced um, Nuthana. Oh, Nuthana. I'm so sorry. As I no, said, that's it, all right. I, I didn't to myself, I didn't actually ask how you pronounce Nuthana's name. <laughs> so I gave it my best guess. But yeah, Nuthana it is. Thanks, Viv. Um, but that's that's fine. I also realised as you said it. Oh, I didn't actually teach her, and that's something that I'm, yeah, for some for some reason have not been very good at. I, th I think from when I was a child, I was like, just let people say it how they how they can say it. But I'm slowly starting to be like, actually, no. If I don't teach people the right way, then they don't know what the right way is. Yeah, well, that is actually a really important teaching point, both from my point of view and from your point of view. So it's not exactly your responsibility to do that. Um, really, I should have asked you before assuming that I know how to pronounce your name. And there's quite an interesting dynamic that goes on there. And I'm trying to, in this moment, show that the conversation that we're having now and that I'm saying sorry to you and you're saying, that's okay, you, I should have told you. We're approaching each other and talking about this in a happy high status way which is open, generous, that's okay. I should have asked you how to say your name. You're saying, no, that's okay. I should have told you how to say my name. <laughs> and it cements a generosity and a magnanimity in an interaction. And I'm sure that people listening to this will recognize these tiny little moments, they are so important in day-to-day -day life and they happen especially all the time in work where we have like a tiny misunderstanding. And if it isn't corrected on some kind of happy high status level where both people accept some kind of responsibility together to, to get this right, then that's when things can start to go wrong. 
So if we can all learn, like exactly like you have done now to say, oh, I just want to pick you up on this thing that you got wrong. And I will say, oh, of course, I'm so sorry. It's actually my fault. Then we can forget it and move on. Um, and it's not just names where this happens. It happens with all kinds of things from job titles to um, um, misunderstanding somebody else's responsibilities or I thought you were going to do this thing. No, I thought you were going to do this thing. Uh, and keeping that open and light is such an important part of this. And I also think it has a slightly British dimension to this as well. There's a lot of different cultural interpretations of this. But I think in British life, we do really struggle to step back and say, oh, wait a minute, what's actually going on here? What is the correct way to proceed? We'll very much think, oh, no, that was really awkward. I don't want to say anything and just let it slide. And in a way, when we do that, we're kind of waiting to become more confident. Like we're waiting for the day when suddenly it won't be awkward. Well, it's never not going to be awkward. So the time to step in and reveal a happy high status response is now. Oh, well, I'm so glad that we got to do a, a happy high status example there without, you know, without thinking, oh, we're going to do something happy high status. So that was lovely. Um, I also want to ask you about your other book, which, well, you've written several books that you didn't mention, but uh, one in particular um, about lifting as you climb, because I think that's so important. And I think particularly as women it's really important that we lift each other because that's how we get more women into leadership roles and in spaces where where people have more voice and of course it isn't only women um but as this podcast is um for medical women and most of our listeners are women that's why I mentioned that um and I wonder if you can speak to us a bit about about how we lift as we climb because I think it's such an important concept yeah, the idea for this book, Lift As You Climb, really originated from an initial event that I had at the launch of this other book, How To In The Room. So that book, as we've discussed, is all about presence and confidence and public speaking. But when I did the first reader event about that book, and I did a presentation and it was all going very well, it was a lovely event. And I got to the bit where I said, has anybody got any questions? This woman's hand goes up and it's a young woman who is clearly with a group of workmates who are sort of on a bit of a work outing. It was like at about seven o'clock in the evening. So they must have come straight from work and they're all kind of giggling with each other. And she put her hand up and she said, I've got a question for you, Viv. What do you do if you work with someone who's a complete bitch? And they all burst in, uh, out laughing and everybody else in the room burst out laughing with recognition. And I was completely fascinated by this question because I thought, wow, where else do you have to ask that question? Clearly, you don't have anywhere else to ask that question. Otherwise, you wouldn't bring it to this event about basically public speaking. Like it doesn't have any, anything to do with how to own the room in a way, although tangentially it does because we're always thinking about what if someone is behaving towards me in a way that is unpleasant, how am I going to stand up to them? All of those things. And so I realized, ah, oh, there's a whole other separate conversation going on here that is not to do with how to own the room, but is to do with how women interact with each other. And you're right to say it's not just women, it could be anyone, but there is a particular onus 
on women, and we don't talk about this very much, that we are supposed to support each other, but nobody quite, and they're supposed to be a sisterhood, but nobody quite explains how this is going to work. What does it look like? What do you actually do? How are you supposed to be in service of other people if you're struggling with your own career? And how are you supposed to be in service of other women if, in inverted commas, someone you work with is a complete bitch? <laughs> so I wanted to really put this question under the microscope, starting as well with the quote from Madeleine Albright, which is, I'm sure lots of your listeners will have heard it, there is a special place in hell reserved for women who don't support other women. And again, I agree with that quote, and I do think we should help each other, but I wanted to ask, what does that actually look like? What are the boundaries of it? What are the limitations? Because clearly you can't just go around the whole time lifting other people. Um, I was very interested as well to know that there's a lot of generational um, pushback on this as well. So older women, I'm thinking over 50, will often think, well, I'm sorry, but I've worked very hard to get here and that's been hard enough. I don't really see how I'm supposed to help other people. I'm not saying everybody thinks that way, but that mm. can be a prevalent way of thinking, especially amongst women who've really got right to the top. They'll often think, look, this was really difficult for me to do this. I can't possibly be expected to bring other people up as well. Younger women, on the other hand, especially under 30, are going to think, sorry, what's going on here? Why is there so much hierarchy? I was expecting to have a lot more responsibility. I expect to have my opinion asked for. I expect to have somebody supporting me. So there are these real difficult waves of expectation. And in this book, I wanted to really dig into all of that and ask, is it really reasonable for women to be expected to do this? Men don't are not expected to do, to do this. So why should we have to do it? So asking for people to really take a personal take on this, you know, what's your personal take? Like, do you feel comfortable doing this? Do you want to give help to others? Would you like to ask for help from others? If you would, this is how. If you don't feel comfortable with that and you're a bit of a lone wolf, if you're a bit of a maverick, if you're a bit of an independent, that's also okay. Um, but you need to acknowledge that to yourself and acknowledge the limitations of that and the responsibilities that's going to put on you. So it's really opening up all of these questions and trying to find small tips and hints for ways in which we can actually do this. And probably the biggest and most useful piece of advice that I unearthed was really to highlight and make visible other people as much as you can, because it costs nothing. It's very quick. It's very easy. So for example, if you ever see another woman in a meeting and she behaves in a way that you think is impressive, let her know. Just tell her face to face or send her an email saying you were great in that meeting. If you ever see a woman on stage and you think she was great, let her know. Uh, if somebody backs you up in a way that you weren't expecting or you were impressed by, say thank you. Uh, really make those moments visible because I think sometimes we just, we either forget or we kind of feel embarrassed or we don't think it's our responsibility to do that. But it's so easy and it means such a lot when you receive that from other people. The other really useful thing that came out of this project um, was the concept of advocacy. So that is where whenever you go into a situation, 
you're thinking about yourself, of course, and how you can come out of it well and how you can best put your point across, but also leave some space to advocate for others. So you're thinking about, okay, who in this meeting hasn't been heard? Whose point was talked over? Whose point was stolen by someone else? How can I subtly help to call out those behaviours or highlight that person or support that person? Um, and if you have a colleague who who is very quiet and struggles to get heard in meetings, then to find a way and maybe talk to them outside of the meeting and say, you know, would you like to speak up more because I can introduce you? Um, or they may say, do you know what? I'm really happy staying in the background. And that's also fine. You can equally lead um, from outside a room or you can lead from, by persuasion and by influence. You don't have to be the loudest person in every room. So finding a way to have those conversations where you can either advocate live in the present moment for somebody or where you outside a room talk to people about this and ask how we can better make each other heard. These are, these are amazing tips. I really wish I had that my notebook and pen to, to be sitting and taking notes while you're talking, Viv, but I'll, I'll do that when I, when I re-listen. Um, but I think what you said is, is so true about um, letting people know, because a lot of the time we do think, well, they were really amazing at that thing, but then we don't share it with them and they don't know. And I think after I started doing the podcast, I realised, because you make this thing and you put it out into the ether, and unless somebody messages and says oh, I've been listening and I find this helpful. Um, we actually have absolutely no idea. So now I'm starting to message people or like come up to you when I met you, like, hi, I listened to your podcast and I love it. Thank you so much. Um, but it is great to then have have those conversations. Um, you've done a lot of stand-up comedy as well, Viv, and I'm sure there are loads of lessons from that that apply to everyday life that you could share with us yeah the biggest lesson is really one about ego that nothing is really about you and that seems like a really strange lesson to take from stand-up which is clearly such a kind of superficially ego driven activity where it's just you and a microphone uh, and you're supposed to be in charge of everything but you really have to get permission from other people in order for for that to happen you know it's actually a dialogue between you 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 ostensibly it's a monologue but in reality you haven't got anything unless you can get the people on the receiving end of the monologue to listen to you and pay attention and really give you the permission to be up there so the way to do that is to not make it about you it's to make it about them so what you're always trying to do in stand-up is develop skills where you are listening almost perhaps even more actually I was going to say almost as much as you're speaking but it might even be more so you're listening really really hard to how things are landing how quickly they're taking uh taking something up uh what worked what didn't work and you're constantly weaving in between those moments and those ideas to try and really follow the audience and follow their response I mean you have ideas of you know you're going to have a script and you know what you're going to say but you might also the longer you do it you have ideas of extra things you could add in or you know that if the energy is flagging you can perhaps chat to people in the audience for a bit you can refocus you can go and stand at a different place on the stage to change the energy but you really learn to listen to other people and let 
their response inform what you're doing and that is quite a radical that was quite a radical thing for me to learn because initially when I first started doing it I thought it was all about me uh, and that made me feel really nervous I didn't I didn't really like it um, obviously I wanted to do it and I wanted to make people laugh and I love I love doing it I still do stand up now I love it um, but I was really really surprised when I realized oh the trick is to make it not about you you really have to leave room in other people for other people in the conversation and obviously that's much easier to do in real life than it is in stand-up because in stand-up you just got to keep talking so it seems like it's all about you <laughs> in real life you know the lesson that I learn is to leave space for other people to listen more maybe say less I think I don't know if my husband and my children would agree with this but I think I'd probably talk less um since I started stand-up apart from when I'm doing podcasts obviously and then I'm talking the whole time but in a situation where I'm not required to be the talker I listen I really love listening to other people and figuring out where they're coming from and then I'll wait and see if I have something to add and I might not have anything to add and that's something that is really really useful I think to take into any walk of life because often your presence you're listening. I mean, anybody who's worked in nursing will know this. Your listening presence, your active, authentic, trusting, patient, reassuring presence, and your time that you take to be with someone else and be present for them and their needs, as much more useful and interesting often than you turning up and saying this is who I am this is what I've come to do here's the benefit of my wisdom often those things are not what real status really is you know real status is responding to the needs of the moment and very often other people need you to be there for them and that involves leaving a lot of space for them and not taking up so much space yourself yep Oh, you've given us so many pearls of wisdom, and I could <laughs> um, I, I could keep speaking to you for hours, but um, I've got some quick fire questions to ask as we as we come to the end of the podcast, if that's okay. Yeah, um, sure. So, the first question is: Is there anything you know now that you wish you had known earlier on in your career? I wish I'd known that other people really don't care about you. And I mean that in a very positive sense, not in a horrible sense. I think I was always scared that nobody cares and so I've got to make them care. Or they really care about the fact that I've messed up or I might do something wrong or they don't like me or whatever. The reality is nobody cares, but in a good way. So people don't care if you mess up. They don't care about what you're wearing. They don't care if you're having a bad hair day. They don't care if you said a word wrong. They just don't care. They've got their own stuff to worry about. So let go of what other people think. Let go of the fact that you think they care because in the, in the very best way, they really don't. Which is so reassuring, right? It's great that nobody that nobody cares as much as we do, but I think we we disproportionately think that people spend all their time thinking about us when, when they're not. They really so, don't. Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, 
And the last question that I'd like to ask you is a question that I'm borrowing from a group of children and young people. So um, I'm a paediatric doctor and they, um, there's a group that works with the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health. And they asked this question when they were interviewing people for the role of president of the Royal College. And the question is, if you were a type of biscuit, what type of biscuit would you be and why? I would be a jammy dodger because I am quite jammy. I'm a pretty lucky person. I make my own luck, but I also ride luck when it comes to me. And I'm a bit of a dodger. Like I can duck and dive. I like unpredictable situations. I love making things up as I go along. Um, and jammy dodger is the best biscuit really, isn't it? They have a great biscuit and I love that answer. And the lovely thing about this question is that um, like we've had a few jammy dodgers on the podcast, but for each one is for a totally different reason. So it's just it's wonderful hearing hearing the answers to to this question. I'm so glad the jammy dodger is popular. It is, and I mean, it is a wonderful biscuit. <laughs> well, Viv, thank you so much for coming and speaking on the podcast. Um, we'll definitely pop a link in the show notes to everything that you're doing. We look forward to reading Happy High Status. And I love reading your newsletters every week. They always make me laugh and smile. So, um, yeah, we'll definitely put a link to, to those in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much for a lovely conversation, Nathan. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Medical Women podcast. Make sure to subscribe for free on whichever podcast platform you listen on so that you automatically get our episodes. The aim of this podcast is to support and empower as many medical women in their careers as we possibly can. So please share this episode with at least one other medical woman. If you're interested in joining the Medical Women's Federation, we would love to have you. And all links to our website and social media are in the show notes. This podcast has been produced on behalf of the Medical Women's Federation by Dr. Nathana Bayankaram and Ms. Jenna McKenzie. Our music was composed and played by Dr. Kethki Bayankaram. Thank you so much for listening.